I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a generous antipasto misto with the best bits of our favorite stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, capo familia of Economist Radio. And on your menu today, the latest in our open future season. Can America's moderates win the battle of ideas? Why British politics is sobering up. And the discovery of the gene for genius. But we start as ever with our cover story, which in Britain and Europe held on tight to the roller coaster ride of Italian politics. Italy's two populist parties, the Maverick Five Star and the xenophobic Northern League, have been trying to form a government for two months. A week ago, the Italian president vetoed their first proposal. Chaos ensued. The populists threatened for a moment to impeach him and even hinted at a march on Rome, an allusion to Benito Mussolini's black shirts in 1922. Amid talk of a political, constitutional and economic crisis, bond yields spiked and global stock markets shuddered. But on Thursday, as we went to press, a second attempt succeeded. Italy now has Western Europe's first populist government. And we warned it could be a wild ride. The populists' plans include a flat tax that would lower revenues and a universal basic income that would raise expenditure. Both parties want to wind back previous pension reforms. This could cost as much as 6% of GDP annually, largesse that Italy cannot afford with its public debt at 132% of GDP, the highest in the world after Japan and Greece. It's a price the country can ill afford. If it wants to introduce a universal basic income, it needs to cut pensions, not increase them. Its tax wedge... The gap between what employers pay and what employees take home is one of the highest in the OECD. This contributes to joblessness. Just 69% of Italian 25- to 54-year-olds are in work, compared with 74% in Spain and 81% in France. In Italy, La Dolce Vita is currently in short supply. A rigid, dual labour market, uncompetitive product markets... The proliferation of family-owned firms that do not grow, a banking system hobbled by bad loans, an underperforming education system and, more recently, a brain drain. London is now a sizeable Italian city. If the new government pursues these thrills and spills, the rest of the Eurozone needs to hang on tight. A founder of the EU, Italy was long one of the most Europhile members. It is now among the most Eurosceptic Inadequate reform and incompatible visions of the euro's future are a poisonous and unsustainable combination. If the turmoil in Italy and the market's fright spur reform both in Rome and Brussels, then some good may come of the mess. The risk is that it will make any reform harder, if not impossible. In the rest of the world, our cover story was rather different. In Xinjiang province in northern China, home to the Muslim Uyghur minority, 
the government has been using the latest surveillance technology to create a perfect police state. James Miles, our China editor, came on our current affairs podcast, The Week Ahead, to tell us more. This development of a kind of panopticon system based on high-tech systems involving monitoring of their mobile phones, involving gathering of uh, blood from Uyghurs so that they can put uh, DNA data into their identity cards, all sorts of techniques to ensure that the state can monitor and control all of the millions of Uyghurs there. To find out more on that, do go to the briefing in this week's issue of The Economist. And if you're not a subscriber yet... You can get your first 12 issues for £12 or 12 American dollars by going to economist.com slash radio offer. And if either of this week's cover stories is enough to drive you to drink, our Badgett columnist can sympathise. For his column in this week's paper, Badgett visited a favourite watering hole for British politicians and political journalists alike. Few people went to the Gay Hazar for the food. They went the booze, or more precisely, for the intoxicating mixture of drink and gossip, alcohol and plotting, that once made British politics such a joy. During the glory days of political drinking, it was routine for journalists to share a bottle of wine or more with their sources over a long lunch, and then stagger back to their offices in order to hit their deadlines. After a sodden 70 years, the Gay Hazar is closing. Last orders for political drinking? Today... Lunches are usually short and dry. Ernest Bevan had the same relationship with alcohol as a car has with petrol. Nye Bevan was nicknamed the Bollinger Bolshevik and Roy Jenkins Old Beaujolais. By contrast, Mr Corbyn is a virtual teetotaler and Mrs May boasted in her bid for the Tory leadership that she doesn't hang around the Commons bars. But though the bottle is an evil master used judiciously, it has served politics well. It can dissolve hierarchies and create bonds, and it can promote truth-telling. A dangerous thing for politicians, but a wonderful one for journalists and society in general. There are more scoops in a bottle of wine than a bottle of Perrier. The decline of political drinking has snapped yet another link between the political elite and the people that they are supposed to serve. Perhaps it's time that British politicians turn to their nation's other favourite tipple, plain tea. A piece in our business section explored how a young company is enjoying extraordinary success by taking tea, of all places, to China. Tipped, not stirred, is how hip young things in China now take their tea, to be exact, at a 45-degree tilt. So advise the tea reasters of Haiti, a budding, pricey tea chain, the better to blend the bitter tang of freshly brewed leaves with a salty cream cheese cap. Naigai cha, or cheese tea, has taken China's rich eastern cities by storm. I'm not sure cheese tea is quite my cuppa, but it's going down a treat among Chinese hipsters. Security guards had to manage queues with waiting times of up to three hours. Impatient customers hired queuers from personal services apps to stand in line for them. Cups were limited to two purchases a person to ward off scalpers. Beijing's bright young things don't like to linger over their brew. Many customers only stay long enough to receive their drink and snap a selfie or two. In that sense, hay tea turns the concept of ritual-laden chaguan or tea rooms, which seem stuffy to young people, on its head. Instead, he wants his pretty stores to be widely shared social media currency. Either a flight of fancy or the rebirth of the tea business. 
Let's tune in to the best of the week in Economist Radio now. In Babbage, our science and technology podcast, our correspondent Kiara Eisner had big news. Two separate studies think they found the holy grail of evolutionary biology, the gene that makes humans so darn clever. The prospect got Ken Kukier, another senior editor and sci-fi enthusiast, rather excited. What I'm really thinking of is gene therapy for nematodes and having our friend the squid help us colonize Mars because we actually seed their brains so that they have bigger ones. So that's an interesting question, and it's one thing to think about because we can see that if this, if this gene had appeared slightly earlier, we might have ended up with gorillas and chimps that were just as intelligent as humans. Of course, the process of growing a big brain occurs over millions and millions and millions of years. So who knows? One of these similar genes might be in an animal right now that we consider to have normal intelligence for an animal, but it's slowly growing this larger brain. We don't know. We have a lot to thank that genius gene for, not least the latest episode of The Economist Asks, our chat show, A Battle of Big Ideas. As part of our 175th anniversary initiative, Open Future, we asked a room full of deep thinkers in Washington, D.C. for their priorities for America now. As both traditional parties try to define their identities against the challenge of populist movements, David Frum, a never-Trumper and prominent Republican commentator, had a strong message for Democrats. The way the Democrats have moved on the immigration issue, I think, is so symbolic. I mean, they are now at the point where they often find themselves arguing that any enforcement activity against any person illegally present inside the United States, not at the border, but once inside, is a crime against human rights. They, they seem to have decided that the whole world has an entitlement to be an American citizen, and that it's wrong for a country to select those people who join the national community. And what they don't understand, and this is the real, from their point of view, this is important, is if anyone can be part of your national community at any time, self-selected, then that's a pretty thin national community. John Negroponte, who served as Deputy National Security Advisor to Ronald Reagan, looked instead to America's relationship with the outside world. When we first opened trade with China in 1979, I was in the State Department, I remember that, when we established formal diplomatic relationships, we were wondering, we were asking ourselves, what are we going to buy from these people? And of course, now we've reached the point where we've got this uh, huge uh, deficit of $375 billion or whatever per year, which raises the question of what is the future of the world global order? Our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton Beddoes, had this answer. The 21st century world order is not going to be a tinkered version of the post-1945 world order. It is going to be something that is built essentially by the US and China. And so we need a strategic relationship between those two countries. Domestically, I think the liberal elite, if you will, and I use the liberal in the English sense, need to regain the spirit of reformism, frankly, which motivated the creation of The Economist 175 years ago. Liberals are at their best when they are radical reformers. They are trying to attack entrenched interests. They are trying to boost competition. They are trying to level the playing field. They are trying to disperse power. And that's what we need right now. You can listen to the full debate by subscribing to Economist Radio wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, let us know what you think. And thank you to everyone who wrote in after listening to our interview with the controversial clinical psychologist, Jordan Peterson. I'm not a fan of identity politics games and the collectivist viewpoint. I don't think we should view history as a, as a structure that 
pitted oppressed women against the oppressor men. I don't like that story. It's, it's destined to divide us in ways that will not be good. And I don't think women were as powerless or as unable to contribute as the feminists claim they were before, like, 1960. Elijah Broadbent felt our line of questioning rather proved Peterson's own point. Jordan Peterson made it clear from the outset that he was interested in helping individuals, regardless of group identity, to live responsible and meaningful lives. But all the interviewer wanted to talk about was identity politics. In my view, this only strengthens Peterson's claim that the left is hyper-obsessed with identity. While Manuel Asali would have a step back and consider the bigger picture. Jordan Peterson's real fight is against nihilism and indifference. That's where the discussion should focus and how liberalism, not as an ideology only but as a way of life, can be a force that allows the individual freedoms that help foster that search for meaning. For myself as Jordan's interviewer, I very much enjoyed the feedback both pro and con. One correspondent compared it with trying to pin down a slippery eel. Another read simply, you are a Muppet. But which one? And finally, after a scorching bank holiday last week here in Britain, Jean-Pierre Brindemour wrote to us from Canada with a heartfelt appeal. I was amazed at Buttonwood's disparaging of men over 50 who can go shirtless on sunny days or wear flip-flops, but that does not mean it is wise for them to do so. How could we be so heartless to a core part of our readership, he asked. There is an editorial penchant for shirtless male leaders in your pages. Maybe your male readers also dream of being shirtless and powerful. As for flip-flops, why not liberate stuffy self-importance with a little beach look? Flip-flop fetish forlorn. Not a moment too soon. That's your lot for this week's Tasting Menu. We do love to hear from you. Keep writing to us, radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. 